Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. Here we go, another week with Jay talking. You're live midnight to five. Uh, there, uh, we do a lot of history. We talk about all kinds of wars: the Revolutionary War, Korean War, World War Two, World War One, War of eighteen twelve. We never talk about my most interesting war. I don't want to say favorite. I don't think it's good to have a favorite war. But the war that seems to interest me the most, perhaps, because it's clandestine kind of war, or perhaps because I was alive for some of it, it's the Cold War. And I've uh, asked Mark Bielski, historian, author, and director of Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, to call in and talk about the Cold War. Thanks for calling in. Uh, thanks for having me. You were a great guest last time, and, I, and I'm excited about this night. Well, good. I am too. Um, I I didn't, you know, when we uh, the subject came up, I just wondered where we were going to start, and um, I I thought that I'd make give a little background on it because I think that uh, students and devotees of history, especially those who are born maybe late eighties or, or after nineteen ninety, don't have much idea about the what the Cold War was. Sure. Go ahead. And Go ahead. If, Give us some background. You want, yeah. Okay. I, I think if you wanted to summarize it, I think one could say it was a basically a struggle for the supremacy between the United States and the Soviet Union, the USSR, after World War II. And I think it, we merged, uh, America did, as we felt that we were the leader of the free world. Um, France had been occupied by the Nazis. Uh, their infrastructure was in shambles. Um, politically, they had been saved because they hadn't been totally destroyed like Eastern Europe was, for example. But uh, And the British had were basically out of money because they had exhausted themselves and lost their empire, and they no longer had the army nor the navy to really back themselves up, although they did have the ideals. Um, so America felt with, that we were the leader of the free world and, and that the free world, I put it, you know, I would say is in quotes, basically that what we would call the liberal Western democracies and capitalist nations. Uh, not that all were good democracies that were aligned with the United States. Uh, you know, some might push the limit on what we call democratic government, but basically it's West versus East. And the Soviet Union was doctrinaire and they had their Eastern bloc and uh, these two 
superpowers are about to butt heads, and that was basically the Cold War. Can you sort of list the countries and the, the leaders on each side? And were there only two sides? Were there, were there more than two sides? Well, I think from a doctrinaire's standpoint, I would say there, it was pretty much bipolar at the outset. And it really started before World War II. Um, every, the Soviets and the, and, the Amer- and the Western powers, Great Britain and the United States, came together out of necessity to fight Nazi Germany. But right after the before the war, they weren't certainly on uh, the best of terms. And after the war, they weren't. So it was the U.S. Uh, under Roosevelt during the war and then Harry Truman right after the war. And uh, Winston Churchill had been the prime minister of Britain during the World, world War II. And then he was influential and came back afterwards. Of course, Joseph Stalin was the um, dictator in the Soviet Union who called all the shots there. And um, with with the Western countries, it would be the U.S., Canada, Great Britain, France, uh, later on West Germany and the uh, countries of Western Europe, um, which would later form NATO. And then with the East, they eventually formed the Warsaw Pact countries, which were the satellites of the East with Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Hungary, Bulgaria, um, that were they that was the Eastern Bloc, and they were they were aligned against not only in doctrine and in philosophy, but uh, physically lined up against each other in Europe, just like two football teams facing off at the line of scrimmage. To what degree was this a battle between capitalism and communism? Well, if you if you went to you know, I often think about it going back to. Um, Berlin, for example, before the wall came down, it was two different worlds going from West Berlin into East Berlin. Of course, now it's not like that at all. But if you went from West to East, it was like like going from uh, Western Europe from West Berlin, which is in three parts right after the war, the American sector, British sector and a smaller French sector into the East, into East Berlin, which was under East Germany and the Soviet Union. And it was literally like going into the third world on the other side of the wall. Um, and East Germany had become, once they closed the border, was very much restricted in terms of travel. And Winston Churchill very succinctly defined it as an iron curtain that came down between Central and Eastern Europe uh, and the West. So it was very distinct in, in how, how you could get goods, uh, what, what was available to the average citizen, what on East and West, uh, how much freedom there was to travel about. Um, the education systems were good in the East. Uh, that's one good thing. There was a very high literacy rate in all those countries. Um, but there was no freedom of movement, and there were, there were no real free elections like they would have in the Western European countries. So basically, it was everything was, and everything had to be approved, so so to speak, by the Soviet Union. So anytime any of these countries got out of line, they were frequently put down, and sometimes it was by force, as we saw in uh, East Germany uh, in the early fifties. They had some um, 
work stoppages that broke out into riots over prices and labor uh, requirements that were put down with force. And then Hungary in 1956 was another one later on in 1968 when the tanks rolled in from the Warsaw Pact countries into Czechoslovakia, uh, spearheaded by the Soviet Red Army to put down the uh, Prague Spring, as they call it, 1968. So if, if any country went too far with uh, a liberal bent or a, a freedom of movement or propose a free election, then the Soviet Union would say that's enough and they would move in and frequently come in with force to put it down. It's interesting that central, in the West. central planning was so central to the Soviet way. It's kind of a grand experiment. Simultaneously, you're running two, in, in globally, two systems and it's almost a, an evolutionary battle to see which system will work and which system will fail. Seems like each side was trying to sign up team, you know, team members. They were vying to get the smaller countries to come on board. And they would, is, it, does that seem correct to you? They would try to yeah. appear as attractive yeah. as possible to third world countries and, and entice them to join on up. Uh, they definitely did, and and I, I see that where well, you see that not only in Europe but but outside of Europe in Africa, uh, the Middle East, in Asia, Southeast Asia. Of course, we saw it firsthand with the Vietnam War and what went on in Cambodia, and then earlier than that, we saw it in the early fifties with the Korean War, uh, because the they would get uh, countries that that maybe had been ex-colonies, like in, in Africa, for example, um, in Angola, there was a, uh, basically unrest and, and people didn't have it. The, the quality of life was not so good, so it was easy to recruit. So the Soviet Union and the Cubans under Castro, once he had taken over, this was in the 60s, went in, in force in Angola in southern Africa to foment rebellion and revolution there to to put that uh, doctrinaire communist uh, government in, and that, that turned into a full-scale war there. So some of the countries bought into it and some didn't. Some had been, when the, so when the Red Army was on, on your territory at the end of World War II, there's not much you could do if they were saying, here's, how, here's what the new law is going to be, here's the new order. Um, but other, other countries, that, which maybe the living standards of living were not so good and they had a... a uh, some leaders that had emerged that were fairly charismatic would buy into to um, the the you know the communist or the socialist system, and it was very doctrinaire. Each side felt that their ideologically that their system was going to be better for the improvement of uh, of the people that they were governing, and we saw that uh, there was a general deterioration in the East and in the West despite all the faults of, of the system, just seem, people seem to improve and have a better lifestyle, a better mode of living than folks in the East. It would seem like problematic right on the face of it that in order to succeed, the, the Eastern Bloc countries control, they didn't allow freedom of the press. They, they, had, to, they had to disseminate uh, the party line and th things like, uh, they the, in East Germany they said we don't have any AIDS here. There's no AIDS here, and they actually continued to sell 
blood to the West that that was in fact tainted. Doesn't isn't that an inherent fault? If if your system is such that you have to keep the truth from people, then that that would be a problem, right? Well, I think we saw that even uh, in. It would happen in the West, especially during times of strife and uh, during the war, of course. There were certain restrictions put on the press, but but there were, there were nothing compared to what would happen in the Eastern Bloc, for example. If we're just looking at Europe now, but that, that goes beyond there. If you look at, at the other countries, certainly China under Mao, after he took over in 1949, there was no freedom of the press there. Whereas if, if you just went across to Japan, which had been uh, taken over by the United States, basically, after the war, we had a military government in place. Um, they did have freedom of the press. So you could criticize, certainly in the United Kingdom, you could criticize, or the United States criticized the government. There was freedom of the press. But if in the Soviet Union, for example, everything was controlled by the state in terms of news outlets. So uh, people were, the information they received came straight from the capital, in that case, from Moscow or from Warsaw or from Budapest or East Berlin. Um, in the West, there was no, there was no government control as much as some, some of the political leaders would like to have it. There was none. What's uh, the most recent thing on the podcast? Uh, actually, I did something. I'm glad you asked, Bradley. I did something on the Cold War. I had a kind of a occasional series where I interviewed two gentlemen who had been one was a both were junior officers in the U.S. Navy during the Cold War. One had been a, aboard a submarine, and the other had been on an amphibious um, force for the Navy, both in the Mediterranean. They talked about how they dealt with the Soviet Navy. And then I had another gentleman, uh, also a friend and colleague, who was a junior officer over there in the Army. So he was facing the uh, Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact countries on the ground there. So it was very interesting. So kind of plays into what we're discussing tonight. So it's an interesting thing. And remind folks about the tours and give some examples of of your historical tours and how yours might be different than other historical tours? Well, we, uh, Stephen Ambrose historical tours, uh, primarily we work with World War II and Civil War, but we also have Revolutionary War, Lewis and Clark, and um, we're adding tours all the time. So we're, we have the Italian campaign, for example, which is just wrapping up right now over in Italy. But uh, our tours have full-time historians lead the group, and these are uh, usually PhD or published authors, and they've been they've been on the ground and led tours many times for many years, and frequently some of our historians are retired military officers who've not only served but done the academic work too. So there's a lot of discussion, and we'll go to the places where the history was made. We make people give them the opportunity to actually experience history in the places where it took place. This is a bit of a, an abstract question, but if you were, let's just say, and you're, you're not, but if you were to have a Cold War tour, what would you include for stops on the tour? 
I would do it would be uh, certainly Berlin would be a key stop. And um, there are some. Well, fortunately for those who live there, but unfortunately for those who wanted to see remnants of what it was, they'd have to see it in museums. But it reminds another place we would go. It would be probably into Poland because you can see certain things there, like the Solidarity Solidarity Museum in Gdansk, Poland, where the Solidarity Movement started under Lech Walesa and pushed uh, the the Polish Communist government into having a free election finally in 1989. But I remember being there, for example, um, they had an exhibit of... uh, example of a bathroom in the old days that would be under the communist system versus a modern bathroom. And the bathroom was just a recreation of what it would look like with really no, no, none of the amenities, no hot water, uh, newspaper instead of bathroom tissue, for example, uh, graffiti on the walls. I remember anti-Soviet graffiti on the walls. Then they had the the also something an exhibit of a of a shop a, a store like a grocery shop, uh, what it would be in the old days, and there was basically nothing on the shelves. Um, there were always shortages, and that's that exemplified life under that system during that. So we would do Berlin and probably certain places in Poland, and uh, probably go to Prague. And um, we're thinking about it, but it won't be in 2020, probably the following year. Wouldn't you have go to um, Moscow or is uh, is Russia making it too much of a pain to do, do the visas? I looked into going back to Moscow and they had really become become a pain in the neck as far as getting in there. Have you found, it, found that? Yeah, we, we have basically we've avoided that for just the reasons that you cite there is that the the visa issue and travel restrictions are, would make it a little difficult. So, And plus the distances. I may have mentioned that once before that you would have to go. I think it's 900 kilometers from Warsaw to Moscow. So that's right there. You have a full day travel just getting there. Right. Um, so we would probably restrict it to the Central European places. Okay. I suppose we should get into some of the specific incidents if that's okay. And yeah. I wasn't really aware of this, that there were two Berlin blockades. There was the Berlin crisis with the wall in 61, but there was a Berlin blockade of 1948. Uh, right. There was the, the Berlin was really ground zero for the Cold War conflict in Europe because uh, surprisingly, most uh, it, it's sometimes surprising when when uh, someone will do the research or just reading for just out of historical interest that Stalin was after the war was even though he was paranoid about uh, never being invaded again, for example. That's the one thing that the the Soviet um, hierarchy wanted to avoid. They never wanted to be invaded. That that was the biggest fear they had. So they had their control in Eastern Europe, but they, they, Stalin basically wanted to be conciliatory toward the West. So he even favored having Germany reunite, but make them a friendly power with no army, of course, to the Soviet Union. And the West, the, the, the U.S., especially when Harry Truman came in, did not want Germany to 
he was concerned and and a lot of his advisors was con- concerned that if it, Germany united before we felt it was ready they would fall too much under Soviet influence Stalin things weren't going the way Stalin had hoped in Europe after World War II the allies especially the Americans were becoming too influential he decided he's going to force us out of Berlin now it, you recall that there was East Germany, but within East Germany, Berlin was still partially, and half of it was under Allied control. But it was isolated from West Germany, and he was going to seal it off. He sealed off Berlin from Western Germany, uh, all communication highways. So the Allies replied with what became legendary, it was a Berlin airlift. So with transport planes, they brought in coal, milk, bread, few other fuels, supplies, food supplies, communication supplies, anything the people of Berlin would need by air. And uh, there was nothing that uh, that East, the East Germans or Stalin could do about it. And the Berliners rallied around it, and they became a symbol for Western freedom throughout the world. Uh, it, so what happened is not only was he did the Soviets fail to seal off uh, Western Berlin from the, from the West, from the Allies, but he also lost the propaganda war in that Berlin became a, it defeated him as original aims and it left the West in control of Europe's wealth. And um, uh, the Germany's capital rebranded itself basically as a symbol of Western freedom uh, and resistance to the um, communist threat from the East. Okay. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. I'm going to move right along because of the time. The Suez crisis. Again, I know nothing about the Suez crisis. Well, the Suez, uh, you had mentioned earlier how some of these other client states became under the influence of either the Soviets or the Americans. Um, the Suez Canal had been an issue and in, in Egypt, of course, between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. And what, what came, uh, the Egyptians came under the influence of the Soviets primarily. And they wanted to take control of the, of the canal. Now, of course, the British and the French who had control of it were not going to allow that. And it became it almost moved to four. They had to move in. Uh, well, they had to move in troops to keep the Egyptians from taking full control over it. And it almost the Soviets moved in, and the Americans moved in. Only our navy in the Mediterranean, 
but it, it was it calmed down much. It was much easier than what happened in, in Berlin. Uh, it just came to basically another standoff, and then both sides came to a uh, um, an agreement that that will keep the canal open and for use as has been before. And then you get to the Berlin crisis of '61, and that's when they built the wall. And is that an extension of the '48 thing? Uh, why? Why well, in '61? And yeah, you know, why? I guess uh, it was primarily because they were losing a uh, hundred thousand. They had lost a hundred thousand citizens, and I think the previous year. So in August of 61, all of a sudden, right before dawn, workers started constructing a wall that divided the Allied sector of Berlin from the Soviet sector of Berlin. And um, it went up and it became not only a symbol that lasted for until Ronald Reagan was president, but it was just a blockade that that was much more difficult to get to. They had a checkpoint, Charlie, which it became famous, that one had to go through to either travel from east to west. Now, to go from west into East Berlin, it was a little bit easier than going from east to west because not just anybody could get permit to go from East Berlin to west. If you were a citizen of East Germany and East Berlin, you had to have a very good reason to go into West Berlin. Um, so people began... Uh, trying to get out through by escaping, climbing the wall in very ingenious means, being uh, bottled up in the size of a footlocker in the trunk of a car, which would make any claustrophobic person go crazy, but they were willing to risk that. Uh, they would go by um, hang gliding was, was one attempt. Uh, they would go by a kayak to escape by water from East Germany. And it became a symbol. And then when Ronald Reagan was meeting with Gorbachev uh, years later, he finally said, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down the wall. That would be the greatest symbol of all that we're opening up. Um, it didn't. It was just a wall in the city of Berlin. Of course, the rest of the country was sealed off, but it became quite symbolic. Are you surprised that, I, well, first, during that whole time, the the Allies, well, the U.S. And, and the Soviet Union are stockpiling missiles. This, this all happens in the backdrop of potential nuclear winter and nuclear, nuclear annihilation. Are you surprised that there was not a nuclear war? I'm, I'm sort of surprised. Well, it w I think after both sides were, were aware of the, of the deadly destruction that came with the A-bomb, the atomic bomb that the U.S. dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And at first, the Soviet Union had a huge army in Europe still, and the Allies did not have quite the army. But they both were deathly afraid of, of nuclear war. So they were willing to, uh, that's one of the things that marked the Cold War, is that neither side confronted each other militarily head on. They did it through proxies. So they avoided they avoided nuclear war at all costs, but there was such an arms buildup that eventually by the time we got to the late 60s and, and into the 70s, we had the Strategic Armed Limitations Treaty, SALT I and SALT II, um, that limited, it, it didn't have them destroying weapons necessarily at the, at the beginning, but it limited what what we could build and what we could test and the same for their side. 
So each there was mutually assured destruction if if anything had ever broken. And I think all the the cooler heads prevail and they could see what would happen to the insanity that that World War Three would be a lot worse than World War Two. Yeah, but we, the uh, communications was so sh- slipshod back then, uh, and, and the time necessary to make a decision so short. I'm surprised that there wasn't a you know a rush to get your weapons away and some mistake made. That's that's kind of I guess this is a good time to talk about Operation Able Archer. See, uh, I'm not I'm not an expert on that, um, but I, I can I can say that with with the arms buildup that we had um, uh, that that there was just it was it was just as senseless as I could look at the uh, figures that they had that they had uh, for uh, how many who had so many missiles because the U.S. was way ahead at first. And one of the things that Stalin saw, and later Khrushchev, who took over, is we have to catch up. Not only we have to build our economy, but we have to catch up so we can we can at least match wall to not wall to wall, but weapon for weapon with the United States. And that was never really going to happen. They were they the missile counts were always unbalanced, but it don't, it only takes one. So just quickly on on able Operation Able Archer. Able Archer was a a, a military exercise that the Soviets were convinced was a, a front for a real a real uh, first strike. And as I understand it, they, they sent a spy into the West to try to figure out if Reagan really thought he could successfully complete a first strike. They, they had done a study, and this spy reported back to the East that, no, they really don't think they can survive a nuclear attack. However, the person that the spy reported to did not pass that forward. And so the Soviets really did think that it was a a ruse. And it, and it got to the point where they actually fueled up six nuclear uh, missiles ready to go. And it was a very close well, thing, as I understand. Yeah, I, I know. I know that it was. It kind of was spawned by, by some, that we came since the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was closest we, that that we had come. But I think it showed the flaws in the um, detection system that each side had, because I believe I believe it was a false alarm that that set this off, and it looked like there was a possible attack, which. We even had recently with Hawaii just a couple of years ago where that false alarm came through that Hawaii thought that there were there was a missile heading their way and um, the whole island was under an um, alert. So you mentioned Prague Spring but, in passing. Can you talk more about that? Uh, it was, yes. In, leading up to 1968, uh, Czechoslovakia, it was before it, it split in the, the Czech Republic and Slovak Republic, uh, had begun, begun to liberalize not only what you could do with the freedom of the press in the country, but in terms of allowing certain uh, means of self-government throughout different areas of, of the Republic of Czech, People's Republic of Czechoslovakia. And Alexander Dubček was in charge. Um, it became increasingly an alarm 
in the other Warsaw Pact countries. And without alerting Dubček and the, the Czech parliament, the Soviets called a meeting with the leaders in Warsaw and um, East Germany, and they met in Warsaw and decided to send in troops because they thought that if we allow this to go on, it's going to spread. They, they could see it happening. And with what I remember thinking that uh, uh, I remember reading that what the Soviets felt, we don't want another Hungary of 1956. So they thought if they can stave this off now, it will be it will look like we're doing it for the betterment of the country. So they sent in not only just Soviet tanks, but it was Warsaw Pact troops to put down the uh, Prague Spring, as they called it. So what resulted in that is by sending in troops with Soviet tanks and um, putting that everything under government control by the Communist Party, what resulted in that was that Czechoslovakia became one of the most repressive regimes in the later years of the Cold War in the East. It also became a symbol of the attempt to, to free a country from the Soviet yoke. And that was the Prague Spring. Now, Gorbachev comes along, and he's an, a leopard of a different color. How did, how did he, somebody as reasonable and Western-friendly, come to power? How did that happen? Well, he generally what would happen in the Soviet Union was when one of the more powerful leaders passed away, uh, there would be within a struggle within the Politburo, the, the governing body of the Soviet Union, for who's going to take his place. And usually someone was in line. But he was the most influential and charismatic. And they had had, of course, they had Leonid Brezhnev and Yuri Andropov. And then they had Chernyenko, who was fairly, he wasn't in there very long, but he was kind of a weak leader. Um, but Gorbachev came along and he was charismatic and well-educated and he could speak well. And he was just able to rest control. The other thing he was is very pragmatic. And he could see that we're the Soviet we as in Gorbachev speaking for the Soviet Union, they're not going to be able to keep up with the West in spending. And an exa a good example of that, and this is how he looked at it because I said he was a pragmatist, um, the U.S. had been increasing their defense spending it, it happened under Kennedy. Uh, he tripled the military budget in basically peacetime in the early 60s in six months in 1961 when he first took over. Later on, um, Gorbachev if, was doing the math, and he could see that their gross domestic product per capita in, let's say, 1983 was about $3,600 in the Soviet Union. In the U.S., it was almost $15,000. That's per person. So their gross domestic product per person was vastly different. By 1990, it was twenty, almost $2,700 in the Soviet Union. In the U.S., it was $22,700. So their, their gross domestic product was only 12% of what ours was in America. So if their military budget, as some estimates have say, could have been 20 percent, uh, whereas our spending was 3.5 percent of our budget, you can see that they're not going to be able to keep up. If they wanted to keep up, that would take away, that would leave only 
less than $1,900 of their domestic product to go toward everything, anything other food, let's say, mm. or hospitalization, health care. Um, they couldn't match us. So basically, we outspent them. And that's, that's, that's the, the simple analysis that everybody uses to this day about why we won the Cold War is we outspent them. They couldn't keep up. President Reagan gets a lot of credit, gets the credit for defeating the Soviet Union. To your view, how accurate is that? I think it's very accurate because he came in at a time when um, we had gone through several iterations of trying to deal with with the Soviets in Europe and through and or, and around the world. Um, and he finally saw he, he saw two things happening. One, we have we have more money than they do, as I just mentioned, and, and that we could outspend them. And two, he saw that with the election of the Polish Pope, Karl Wojtyla, that Europe, Eastern Europe, the, the Christians and Catholics in Eastern and Western Europe were kind of gravitating toward the Pope. And and the Pope was not afraid to go. He, he returned to Poland. He, we, he preached over the airwaves to the various countries about human human values and betterment of the human spirit and life in general. And Reagan saw had a kinship with him. And I think he felt that he, and plus Reagan, once again, like Gorbachev on the other side, was very charismatic. And he knew when to take an opportunity, not only like a, in front of a camera, but in saying the right thing. I think he, he could do it. And even with, with bringing up the Star Wars concept, uh, I recall that there was a congressman who said that, you know, we don't have such a thing as Star Wars. Well, nobody knew whether we did or not, but Gorbachev didn't want to take any chances. Um, Star Wars was just a, basically a pipe dream, but it was the Soviets think if we're not keeping up now and they start, they have this new program where they're going to control weapon, nuclear weapons from out from space. They'll never be able to keep up monetarily. So was that, that a was that was that a pipe dream or a bluff? Did did everybody on this side know that it wasn't going to happen and they just floated that out to, to freak out Gorbachev? Well, I think I, I think that the the intelligence. Uh, the intelligence people are always make and military. They're always making plans, what if plans, and for eventualities. So I'm sure there were plans on paper. I don't know if anything ever got started with it, but it could have been a bluff and it could have been a real thing. But I don't think we ever had anything that we ever launched in space to 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 have any nuclear weapons that we could aim at Moscow, for example. But but they didn't want to, it. Was like being in a car when Gorbachev didn't want to call. So Gorbachev says, I can't beat them. Um, so does he attempt to join us? Does he, how does he operate? What is his strategy once well, he sees that he then, cannot then, defeat us? Then it became basically the reverse of what we had always in the West thought of as a domino theory. If one country falls to communism, the rest are going to fall in line. Well, it, it, did, it was a reverse of that for them. Uh, Poland had the election in, in, I believe, it was June of 1989. Uh, later on, the wall came down. East, East Germany had uh, took the wall down, and the people streamed across into West Berlin. And one by one, all these countries started peeling off from the Eastern Bloc. And then next, 
thing after that, even some of the Soviet republics were um, um, deciding they don't want to be part of the Soviet Union anymore. So things just fell apart, and there was no way to hold it together. I mean, all, all the, as, as we know in this country, all these things take a lot of money, and the Soviet Union by this point was, was exhausted monetarily. I really appreciate you spending time with us again. I know it's late, and I want to make sure it's worth it to you, so I, need, I want to plug your podcast again, History with Mark Bielski, and uh, you, you are doing, you have done some Cold War things on the podcast. What, what's coming up? Well, I'm going to have a little bit more on the Cold War and development. I, I, very interesting. I'd like to add one thing, if I may. Conrad Adenauer, who was Chancellor of West Germany uh, back in the when the Cold War was at its hottest, really, he said that history is the sum total of things that could have been avoided. And I like to say that that could have been avoided. I'd say if you want to think about the Cold War, things that should have been avoided. So I'm going to go more into the things that could could have been avoided and should have been avoided in the Cold War. Okay. And don't forget, folks, that uh, our guest, Marcus, the director of the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, which is well-established and something you might want to think about. Really appreciate the time, sir. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Bradley. I appreciate it. Okay. That's uh, WBZ. Thanks, Mark. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.